that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by the members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Cyprus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Our nation is divided. Can you feel the tension, the hostility? Do you see the violence all around us? And yet it's not just our nation. It's not just socially and racially and politically. We are divided in our homes, our families, our marriages, and in our churches. And the problem is that we don't see a lot of hope in the future of things getting a lot better. They seem to deteriorate more and more over time. And because of this, we have lost our joy and our peace and our unity. Where do we go? And this is why I think it is so critical for us as Christians to tie our hearts and our minds, our lives, to God's Word, the Scriptures. Because this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his dear friends in the city of Corinth 2,000 years ago has as much relevance and as much help for us today as it did for them. So we invite you to join this study. We started last week. The study is called A Walk in Wisdom or Walking in Wisdom. And we pray that we'd be able to discern our times, our age, the problems, the challenges, and to be able to walk in that way. Lots of problems. I remember the story of the Apollo 13 when they had an explosion on board and we remember those words, uh, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> well, this church, this group of believers had a lot of problems. And the Apostle Paul patiently works through these problems with them and seeing them resolved in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm looking forward to be able to share from God's Word today as we'll title this message, A, a Plea for Unity. A plea for unity. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking to his beloved friends who are in the city. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. Megan just read that whole text. But I'd like to focus in on verse 10. We have eight verses altogether, but really all of the points are in verse 10. And we'll build some of those out by looking at the other verses. So verse 10 says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. So the Apostle Paul, the father really spiritually to these friends that he has in the city of Corinth, it's a, it's a new church established on one of Paul's missionary journeys. 
He sees division. He sees conflict, not only in their society, but also in their families, their marriages, and in the church itself. So he notes this, and he is going to plead with them that they come back to a place of unity. So we'll, we'll build this out on four points. And uh, so if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to take notes, because I think when you look at the verse and you write in your margin or write it in a notebook, it'll help you process some of these things. We're going to look at the appeal. He is pleading with them. We're, we'll look at the audience. Who is he speaking to directly? Because this, this isn't just a, a sermon that goes out to everybody. He is speaking to a particular audience. So the appeal, the audience, the ability. How do we do this? How do we go from conflict and division to bringing about peace and unity? And then finally, agreement. What is the agreement? What are we to agree on? Appeal, audience, ability, and agreement. So first of all, the appeal. We start off in verse 10, reading these words, Now I urge you that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united. So there are divisions, there's conflict, there's hostility going on in the church. And Paul says, I am pleading with you. It's very interesting, this word. It's a beautiful word. When we look at it, we, we read urge or appeal or plead but it's para kaleo. Para means alongside. You, you come in alongside. And kaleo means to call. So there is the, the comforting arm around the shoulder, and then there is the calling a person to do the right thing. Comfort and challenge. And you notice this. It's, it's not a finger. You're divisive, you're having problems. It, it's not a lecture like that. It's not a fist threatening them. It is coming alongside, putting your arm around, and entreating that person to do the right thing. I think this is really important to understand this because this word has great power in expressing how the Christian life works. Christianity works through relationships coming alongside. So when we talk about the word disciple, following Jesus, coming along, Jesus coming alongside us, us coming alongside another person, this is how we should function as a family. You come alongside someone, you comfort them, you encourage them, but you also challenge them. There's the word, uh, a variation of this word, we have parakaleo, which, which means to, to come alongside and to call them but paraclete, a similar word that is often referred to the Holy Spirit who comes alongside to help. And so this is the way we function. It's the nature of discipleship. So apparently there are divisions <laughs> and conflicts, discord, disunity uh, will cause grief in our hearts. It'll cause grief in those around us. It will really dis disrupt a clear witness to the world of what a good Christianity should look like, but most of all, it grieves the heart of God when he sees his kids, his family, his people in constant conflict. Now, we know this because Paul expresses it in verses 11 and 12. Listen to what he says. He says, for it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, 
that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, or Peter, or I belong to Christ. Well, Paul's getting his information from Chloe's household. Now, this isn't Chloe in our church, but she could be related at some point. But this is probably some of Paul's faithful followers that are sharing with him their concerns about their family, their their church, and that they're divided. And he kind of shows us how this happens. Some people say, I belong to Paul. In other words, I'm part of Paul's group. And the way that, that it goes on to express this in the further verses is I was baptized by Paul or I was baptized. In other words, there was something that they had in common with it, that person. Well, he talks about Paul, Apollos, Cephas, who is Peter, and Christ. So you've already got this family split in four ways. And they're all competing with each other to express their views and opinions. And they... they formed these little social clubs. Probably with Paul's, it might have been, well, he's, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And, and Paul was so theologically precise. I mean, he, he was an incredible intellectual. We have 13 of these uh, letters written in, in the New Testament by the apostle Paul. And Paul is so, so profound in his ability to spell out what the Christian life is, how, how it is to be lived out. Uh, he deals with problems. It's amazing. Now, Apollos, Apollos is relatively new in the scene. He's a newer Christian. He doesn't have all that background, but he is an incredible speaker. He's an incredible speaker. And people will come in. He's just like, uh, like Cicero. He, he, he would command an audience with his profound speech, where Paul often referred to himself as he doesn't have enticing words of, uh, that impress people. And then you have Cephas or Peter. You could say, well, Peter was one of the original. He was the foremost apostle. He was there with Jesus. I'm with him. And then, and then the super spiritual ones say, I'm in the Jesus club. We are the most righteous because we follow Jesus. And, and you say, well, what is causing within a church family all the conflict? Well, I, I could probably say, well, it's, it's, it's that group or it's that group. It's that group. And, and we are so good at pointing the finger at the problem. And, and here's what Paul is challenging us to do, to take that finger, turn it around, and look at ourselves. Because we are the problem. And just like we were saying last week, that the great need that we have in America and our nation to bring back unity is not in politics. It's not a new president. It's not a new government. It's not social reform. It's when the church begins to be what God designed it to be. That's when society will begin to change. So these factions are causing constant conflict. And in verse 13, uh, Paul asks a rhetorical question. He says, is Christ divided? Have you chopped him up into into pieces? It it says in the message, uh, have you divided them all up? No, no, Christ is unified. And the church should be unified. God's people should be unified. So this is the appeal. He makes his appeal. The second word is audience. Who's he speaking to? And your Bible may say brothers or brethren or brothers and sisters. Mine 
uh, says brothers and sisters. It's interesting because this, this Greek word, adelphoi, is the plural of a brother. It's male, but yet it says brothers and sisters. Why, why is that? Well, this is why having several translations is very helpful. I always ask myself, what does it say and what does it mean? Because every text says something and it means something. Well, in context, and this is why you need to study context, and typically every one of you can look up these things in a study Bible or a, some sort of commentary or even Google it and find these things out. But it just takes a little work to study this. But it's interesting that he says brothers and sisters. And so this was a typical, uh, the old King James called it brethren, brethren. <laughs> and the context was all of the church. He's speaking to all of the church, to brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so when we, we use this word often because almost every uh, place of assembly or worship that we see has the word church on it. And as we shared before, it's, it's a more of a Germanic word. Uh, the Greek word is ekklesia. And ekklesia means the called out ones, the ones who are called together. And I'd say the most literal translation of ekklesia is the English word community. Of course, that's the name of our church, Valley Community Church. So we say it's really Valley Church Church or Valley Community Community. But it expresses that point. <coughs> Excuse me. Community. And, and what he is saying is that when this family was formed, it is a new kind of community. The audience that he speaks to is the church, the community. And when you take the words, English words, common and unity, what we have in common, what we share together, we're unified. That's how we get the word community. It's a beautiful expression of what it actually is. This new community has been formed uniquely. It is different than any other group because it has been formed supernaturally by the grace of God. It is a community formed with grace. And what's so different about it is you have black and white and red and yellow, all nations, all languages. You have people that are rich and poor that are prominent and disdained. You have people that are upstanding citizens and people that are just getting out of prison. You have people that are dirty and smelly and have very little and some that are rich, and they're all part of one family. They were all sinners, saved by the grace of God. There's nothing else like it. There is nothing in the world like this, that the commonality is the grace of God in Jesus, and it has unified these people into one. That's why there should be unity. It's a family. You know, when you think about family, sometimes you say, well, family, oh, because family presents a lot of challenges. But there are things that I would do for family that I wouldn't do for anybody else because they're my family. Wouldn't you agree on that? Someone has a need, uh, someone that needs help. So you might ask, what is the basis for this community, this commonness and unity? Well, it's God, and God showed this in his very creation. 
Now try to follow me if you can on this. God is a community. God is a community. And one of the things that's really hard for us to comprehend is the Trinity, that you have one God in three persons. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who have dwelt in a beautiful, harmonious relationship from all eternity, from all eternity to all eternity. We see it in creation that God the Father, active in creation, God the Son, active in creation, the Holy Spirit, active in creation. And this isn't something that just came about. This is the way God has always existed. And so love and appreciation and value come from that. As they enjoy that fellowship, then also God builds his creation out of it. For example, marriage. You say when a man and a woman come together, they become one flesh. So you have two that become one. And it's a mystery. It's a mystery how God does that. When God created man, he says, it's, it's not good that man is alone. In other words, there's something missing, something incomplete. So woman has been brought in to complete what God has done. The next illustration of this is the church. And when God puts the church together, he brings many people together into one body, and he describes the head as being Christ. So this is important to understand that, that God is a God of community. He created marriage and family to have community, and he designed the church to function in community. To me, it's, it's a powerful uh, way for us to understand his design. If, if we fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the church or the community is described as a body. You got, you got fingers and hands, you have eyes, you have ears, and they all function together in unity responding to the head, which is Christ. That's a picture of that. And the expression of it, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, is love. So when you see the community, what you see is unity, love, kindness, mutual appreciation, everything working in a coordinated way. But that's not the way it was in Corinth. And so we have this letter. He is challenging them, don't be divided, don't be off doing your own things, be perfectly unified. So that's the audience. So we have the appeal, the audience, and, and thirdly, the ability. So when someone says to you, be united, act in love, uh, be one in your spirit, you say, how in the world do we do that? Well, I'll, I'll kind of give you the end result answer right up front. It, it's supernatural. It cannot be done apart from Jesus Christ. How often we have said that, that Jesus Christ is the means and he is the end of everything. He is before all things, he empowers all things, and to all things we will come. Uh, Romans chapter 11 and verse 36 describe that. From him, through him, and to him are all things. So we will never have unity without Jesus. Not in our nation, not in our marriages, not in our families, and not in our churches. Until we all come to have reconciliation 
and those relationships through Jesus Christ. You know, we talked about this two weeks ago, how in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that the Lord speaks to us about this reconciliation. All of this is possible because of what Christ has done. So let's look at verse 17 of our passage this week. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, Paul Zane, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, may not be like Apollos, <laughs> so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. So in other words, Paul says, I don't, I don't want you to know me because of people I've baptized. Baptism is it's important, but it's not indispensable to Christianity. It is not the main thing. The main thing is the preaching of the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he rose again the third day, and he offers to us the gift of eternal life. And if we receive that gift of eternal life by faith, then, then we can be his children, and we can find that peace and that joy. So this is a new community of grace that only happens by the power and work of Jesus. He said in John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. And so we cannot have peace. We cannot have unity. We cannot have reconciliation apart from Jesus. So all reconciliation, vertically and horizontally, will happen through Jesus. And then he says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he has given to us, his children, today, the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? Well, he's placed us on this earth to help people be reconciled to God by sharing Jesus with them. He's put us into churches, into families, into places of work where we are to be ministers or agents or ambassadors of reconciliation. We are not bringing division. We are bringing unity. So this power, this ability, is only through Jesus Christ. So that's the ability, the appeal, the audience, the ability. And finally, we'll end with this point, the agreement. So if you say you have to have agreement to have unity, if we're going to be of one mind, we've got to be able to agree. So agree on what? <laughs> we, we're not going to agree on everything. And he's not saying that we agree on everything. In verse 10, he says that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. To have a common unity, we must be in agreement on the same conviction about Jesus. Everything centers around Jesus. So when I think about what do we have to agree on to have unity? Now, Diane and I, God's blessed us with a great marriage. Uh, we agree on a lot of stuff. There's some things we don't, but the essential things we do. And you can have perfect harmony and perfect unity and not agree on everything. So he talks about conviction. What's the difference between a conviction and a preference? And, I, and this may not be a perfect uh, analogy, but I would say a conviction is something that is absolutely necessary. Uh, you can't do without it. A conviction would be something I would be willing to die for. A preference is something I prefer, but I'm not going to die for it. And you can probably think of a lot of things that would fall into that category. 
So Paul and Apollos and Peter and Jesus all have the same, what we would call the irreducible minimum of the core values and beliefs, the sine qua non. They have unity on the essentials. They have charity on the non-essentials. So on substance, unity. On style, we have flexibility. So what is it that the church must agree on? And I would say it would be those beliefs, the foundations or the fundamentals of the faith that without believing that, you do not have Christianity. In other words, if you, if you don't believe that salvation or eternal life is a gift from God, not of works, you don't have Christianity. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, because otherwise Jesus would have been a born a sinner just like you. He couldn't die for anyone. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, you don't believe in the inerrancy of God's word, you don't believe in the resurrection, then you don't believe in life and life eternal. These, these to me, if you take any one of these out, you no longer have Christianity. And, of course, the uh, believers throughout the centuries would narrow these down to a very, uh, the irreducible minimum, some will call the Apostles' Creed, that they would quote that every Sunday in church, going through, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this. And there are certain things we must believe to have an authentic and genuine faith, and we must believe them to have unity. Otherwise, we're not going to have them. So, what about the preferential? Because there are a lot of things we prefer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember going to church, I think I was in high school, and we just moved uh, up to Rhode Island. My dad was stationed at the Naval War College, and we're looking for a church. And so I'm, a, I'm kind of interested, you know, what we like. And I remember going to the church that I really liked. And, I, and I, when I was walking out, I said to my dad, I think we ought to go there to church. And he said, why is that? I said, I liked it. It was good music. It was fun. I enjoyed the guy's talk. And uh, he, he later on, he said, the only problem is they don't believe the gospel. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I didn't see that. I, was, I probably wasn't that discerning either. But, you know, you can have incredible music. And the, the speaker is amazing. The children's program, wow. You walk into the, to the building, they are so friendly. But they don't think the same thing about Jesus. They, they will teach us salvation by works, by merit, by baptism. Um, and, you know, that, that you can't have fellowship there. You cannot have any unity if you're a true follower of Christ. So I would say the non-essentials, you know, they're important to all of us, but, but like music. Uh, some people say, you know what, I love the old hymns. And I love the old hymns. Some will say, I love the new music. And I love the new music too. But so where do, you, where do you find the balance? These things, to me, you measure by Scripture. There, there's a, a broad scope of what I believe could be acceptable. What about the way we dress when we go to church? What about what translation do you study out of? Uh, what organizations are you a part of? What denominations do you uh, support? What missionaries do you uh, give your help to? There are a lot of things that we can vary on. And with, with preferences, I would say the idea is be gracious. You know what? Value and appreciate other people. There are a lot of opinions out there. Those are negotiable. 
Those we, we work out in a spirit of love and kindness, but when it comes to the essentials, we're still kind and we're still gracious, but we're immovable. These things will never give up. And that is the attitude we should share. So when we look today at our nation, it's pretty discouraging. We're incredibly divided. Tensions everywhere, hostility, violence, without a lot of hope ahead of us. I look at our marriages, our families, our kids that are going to school, the breakups that we're experiencing today. We don't have a lot of unity. We don't have, and as a result, not a lot of joy and peace and contentment. So what's the answer? What's the answer? And I believe Paul hits it the nail on the head. I mean, Paul is saying the church needs to be what God intended it to be, a community. What we have in common, the essentials, we have unity around those. We have graciousness and love and kindness, and we see ourselves as ministers of reconciliation. So my challenge to us is, as we conclude, is that as we fit into this world, fit into our families, fit into the relationships of our lives, you got to ask yourself, am I a divider? Am I, am I promoting conflict and fighting about things that really don't matter? Or am I a unifier? Am I following the example of Christ and being a minister of reconciliation?